good to see you and good to be back. Uh, we're right in the middle of chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. If you're following uh, in the note packet at page 29, <clears throat> excuse me, on the board is just a little, um, and it's my typical, very sloppy, might be hard to read, but uh, it's kind of a summary of what really is going on here in this chapter and a little bit uh, in the previous chapter. <clears throat> if you're following um, in this chart that I gave you quite a, quite a few weeks ago, the basic chronology framework of the book of Revelation are the series of three judgments, three, um, three specific items. The first are the seven seal judgments followed by the seven, seven trumpet judgments followed by the seven bowl judgments. We have gone through the seal and trumpet judgments for the most part. And as you know, if you're familiar with this now, each one of these little blocks, both above and below the chronological line, are little parentheses. And we're right in the middle of this one, 12 through 14, which I find extremely helpful for us because it identifies the seven personages, seven entities, seven actors, seven prime movers in this period of time. And that's what we're just concluding now. And three of those four, uh, excuse me, three of those seven are Satan in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, are all of his titles, all of his names. But he's called the great dragon, Satan. It's the, the uh, serpent of old, the devil. All of those titles are there. And the focus of the book of Revelation, now we're going to really see it intensify in the remaining weeks we spend, is on this individual. 1 John 2.18, he's called the Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, he's called the Beast. <clears throat> now, what is important about him, and we talked about that last time that we were together, that was largely what we did. The first 10 verses of chapter 13 describes his character, describes his basic goal, and then how he achieves it is what we're going to find out in the remaining chapters. What we learned is that Satan that serpent of old, the devil, etc., empowers him. There is even the sense that, that's why I put question mark, that he indwells him. That Antichrist the beast is the incarnation of Satan. It's, it's a little hard to be absolutely dogmatic about that, but it certainly is not outside the realm of probability. What we're going to do this morning is look at this third of these three, the false prophet. He is going to be called the beast, uh, the creature coming out of the land and so on. But in Revelation chapter 16, Revelation 19 and so on, he's called the false prophet. Where Satan empowers, perhaps even indwells him, it is the false prophet who facilitates his power, who fosters worship of him and supports him. So um, as a couple of you concluded last time, correctly so, what you really have here is a false trinity. That's really what you have, a false trinity. And so in these last days before uh, the Lord Jesus returns, and that's where we're headed in this, this book uh, to chapter 19 when the Lord returns, this is the last and final thrust that Satan throws at God. And in, Reve in Matthew chapter 24, which we studied quite a long time ago, in Matthew chapter 24, the Lord Jesus uses over and over and over again the word deceive. 
that in these last days you will be deceived, you who are alive, that deceptive, this deceptive tactics of Satan are going to be so significant that even some of the elect will be deceived. That's how Jesus talks. And so what you see here, we're going to really see it as we move into this particular section now, verse 11 to the end of the chapter of chapter 13. This false trinity is apparently going to be so deceptively convincing that that much of the world is going to follow him. Let me do one more thing by way of uh, just introduction and somewhat review. In the first three and a half years of this seven-year period, which period that Jesus calls the tribulation, this individual, the Antichrist, or the beast as he's called, and all the other names he's given throughout the Bible, what he's doing is consolidating his power. Both political power and religious power, as you're going to see here, and we're going to be discussing this in just a minute, and his economic power. So that the end result really is, he becomes, in effect, like a world ruler. What happens in the second half, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, his power, his hold on the world begins to unravel. And this this grand, I'll use words we use today, this grand coalition that he builds with himself at the center begins to unravel. And that's what leads to the Battle of Armageddon. That's what leads to the campaign of Armageddon, which we'll get to uh, a bit later on here. So um, anyway, does this kind of make sense? I'm doing some review, but this, this is really the focal point now of really the rest of the book. And it's, it's helping us to understand more and more the key personages of this final seven-year tribulation period, whatever label you want to give it, is Satan empowering, perhaps indwelling, the beast, the Antichrist, who is facilitated and supported by this false prophet, as he's going to be called, as you'll see a couple of times. <clears throat> and in effect, what we see, I think, is a, is a false trinity. Okay? With me? Yes. All right. I'm getting warm. Now. <laughs> We're getting energized here, so... Let's pick up then in verse 11, if there are no more questions. Verse 11, and I saw another beast coming up out of the sea. Now, this is not the same one that we see in verse 1. That that coming up out of the earth, I should have read, excuse me. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. The other one comes up out of the sea. These are two different beasts. In uh, chapter 16, verse 13, in chapter 19, verse 20, in chapter 20, verse 10, he's called the false prophet. So let's use that label of him, okay? Now notice the description. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a dragon. Now, no, they are similes. You know what a simile is? It's a figure of speech introduced by the word like or as. So it isn't that he has two horns as a lamb or is a lamb. It's like a lamb. So whom is he imitating? The lamb of God. And spoke as a dragon. What dragon? The dragon that we've read throughout the book of Revelation, Satan, the deceptive one the master deceiver, who was a liar from the beginning. These are all the words Jesus uses to describe him. Now, that's, that's really important that you, you, you don't miss that. These descriptive 
um, similes, these descriptive figures of speech, tell us what his character is. He's going to sound good. He's going to sound convincing. He is going to imitate the Lamb of God as he supports the beast. All right, now I just wanted you to make sure you, you, you see the significance of those two similes. Now what follows in verse 12 through verse 18 are seven key elements of what he does. Seven key descriptive statements about his function. Seven key characteristics of how he supports the beast. Are you with me? First of all, in verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. What does that mean? Who's the first beast? The beast of verses 1 through 10. The Antichrist. So he exercises his authority. He is his front man. He is his public relations man. He's his marketing. I'm making up words, but I'm trying to get you to see it. He is the key supporter and facilitator of the consolidation of the power of this individual. You know, I, I, I can't even compare him to anybody, but he would kind of be like us in the United States, a key secretary of state who is so close to the president, when he speaks, he's speaking for the president, and no one doubts it. Or like, um, it sort of doesn't fit, but like in, in a monarchy, you have the monarch and then the prime minister. The prime minister is the spokesman of the government of the monarch. Again, that doesn't necessarily work today in England, but I think you get the idea. that He's that kind of individual. There's no light between the Antichrist and the false prophet. Okay? And it goes on. The second thing he does, in middle of verse 12, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. That takes you back to verse 3. So it's telling us that this false prophet takes that event of that that seeming supernatural healing and uses it to foster the worship of the first beast. Now, let's, let's refresh our memory. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when you see the abominable one who desolates set himself up to worship, to be worshipped, take note. So that's, this is where we're at. We're at the middle point of that, of that seven-year period where everything is coming together. This Antichrist is reaching the apex of his power, his authority, and he is in effect being set up as one to be worshipped. And who is helping to facilitate that? This false prophet. Would that be when he sets himself up in the temple? Correct. Correct. Now, the third thing he does, look at verse 13. There's a phrase that's really important. And he performs great signs so that even, even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of man. 
Now, it's hard to know exactly how to understand that. The key word is the word signs. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, it speaks again and again and again, you will know Messiah by the signs that he performs, by the miracles that he does, by the supernatural power that he exhibits. Isaiah tells us that when Messiah comes, he will heal the sick, he will give sight to the blind, the dumb will hear, the dead shall be raised. Did Jesus do those things? Three of you are shaking your head rest. Yes, the rest of you are playing living statues. But your answer is yes, isn't it? Yes. So, and what the book of Acts does, what Hebrews chapter 2 does, is the signs and wonders that Jesus did proved who he was. So this individual is performing signs. What kinds of signs? doesn't tell us. But we would assume that these are extraordinary signs, seemingly miraculous, that are causing people to say, the beast is the Messiah. Because what's one of his titles? Antichrist. The, the, the instead of Christ. The one who is claiming to be the Messiah. Now, all I'm saying to you is this individual is doing things which is enhancing and, and supporting and facilitating and encouraging, and as you will see in just a minute, forcing the worship of the beast. But how's he getting attention? How's he drawing the focal point of attention that you need to pay attention to this guy, the beast, by the signs that he does, including, and exactly what that means and exactly what it looks like is problematic, but including calling fire down from heaven. Would you suspect that he would be able to heal and make land see and those kind of signs? Or I'm sure that doesn't describe that. It, it doesn't. That's, that's a great question, Woody, and I, I, just, I just don't know if I can answer that dogmatically. It doesn't tell us that. It just says... He's doing signs. Now, the way the Bible uses the term signs, and I see no reason to to see it different here, a sign points to something that you're to conclude, a conclusion you're to draw. So a Jew in the first century seeing Jesus healing people, walking on water, doing the kind, is to conclude, this is everything Isaiah said he's going to do. He is the Messiah. But as you know, many people in Israel in the first century didn't reach that conclusion. That's, that's part of the, the, the message of the Gospels. So I think what, he, that what, he, what it's telling us is that this false prophet is going to do extraordinarily, let's say, miraculous things. Because don't forget, Satan, Satan is a powerful being. The demonic power that he has is significant. He does not have the power to create life, but he has the power to do terribly horrible things. So he has it, so it's going to be exhibited here. But it is pointing to this conclusion that people are this man, this beast, is someone who deserves our worship. Look at what he's doing. And that's that's the conclusion we're to reach. Then verse 14. So number one, 
He serves the authority of the beast. Number two, he fosters the worship of the beast as a result of his, quote, healing, end quote. Number three, he performs great signs, which are to point, direct people, this person deserves worship. Number four is in verse 14. Notice that important word, deceives. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wound, the sword had come to life. All right, now, did you see that? I don't mean to get grammatical, but I want you to make sure you see that. The middle of verse 14, and because of the signs which it was given to him to perform. That's passive voice which means someone gave him the power to do this. Who gave him the power to perform those signs? The first beast. The Satan. Satan is energizing and empowering him. As Satan energized and empowered the first beast, Satan is energizing and empowering him to do his work. That passive voice means this doesn't originate from him. It's power that's been given to him. And in facilitating this worship, what is he doing? He's insisting that they build an image of the beast. The Greek word is icon. Statues? Could be. Photographs? Could be. Images on your smartphone that the first thing you see as you turn on your phone is the beast. I'm making that up. We don't know, but it's just saying he is exalting the worship of the beast, and listen, making him, in effect, like he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Wherever you go, you see him. Is it? Have you ever followed in history how autocratic rulers try to do that? During the Roman Empire, at its heights, during the great Caesars, the Caesars built, it ordered st- their statues be built all over the Mediterranean world. That's why whenever we do significant archaeological digs anywhere in the Mediterranean world, you find statues of the Caesars. Why? Because you want, they wanted their Caesar to be ubiquitous. Isn't that a great word, ubiquitous? It means everywhere. You couldn't escape him. Wherever you went, you went to a port city, you went downtown, you saw a statue of Caesar. Do you remember Vladimir Lenin? Lenin was the dictator of, of the, uh, the Soviet Union when it was founded. And it was incredible. Over From 1924 when he died until 1953 when Stalin died, they were building statues of Lenin everywhere in the Soviet Union. Why? And then what they do with Lenin? When Lenin died, you know what they do? You can still see him. He is in the Kremlin wall, preserved in a hermetically sealed chamber. You can see Lenin. And there's a man that every year goes in, opens that chamber, cleans the body, and reseals it. Why? Lenin is everywhere. When Mao Zedong died in 1970, what did they do with Mao Zedong? You go to the Hall of the People in Big Red Square in Beijing, China, there you see Mao Zedong, still preserved, just like Lenin. Kim Il-jung, the dictator of North Korea, when he died, they did exactly the same thing. 
I wouldn't advise you to go to Pyongyang right now in North Korea, but if you would go there, you could see him preserved. Because listen, a dictatorial authoritarian ruler wants you to always be cognizant of his presence. He's everywhere. And that's what this false prophet is going to do, to facilitate and support and enhance this power and worship of this beast. He's going to order statues be built, icons be built all over the world. Will there be Christians during this period? And if so, uh, if not, that answers it. But if, if, if there are Christians, will they likewise be received? Well, yes, remember, that's the ministry of the 144,000, the ministry of the two witnesses that to proclaim the gospel, and we've read a number of times, we'll read more again, the martyrs during the period of the tribulation will come to faith. But, Fred, what's going to happen is they are going to be forced. You either bow down and worship, or you will be executed. However, because now to your question, apparently some of those will be deceived. Jesus says that. It'll be so convincing that even the elect will be deceived. But would they, they wouldn't lose their salvation. I don't think so. And that's all I'm, your question was, will some be deceived? And the answer to that is apparently yes. It, it, I'm not crossing the <laughs> theological line, but I mean, uh, but, I mean, this, this is, what is going on here? And that's the line. What is going on here is, this, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, he is being presented as a false Christ. And it, he has signs and wonders. He apparently comes back to life after a mortal wound in verse 3. And the false prophet is facilitating and enhancing this, this worship. Listen, not, that, none of this should... Listen, I keep saying listen. We're reading something in the Bible. But what is being said here is not abnormal or unusual in authoritarian or dictatorial regimes. You want your ruler to be regarded as a demigod. Now, I don't mean you personally, but that, that's how they do it. You, wanna, you want that, your ruler wants, he wants you to understand him as someone almost supernatural. He can do no wrong. That's one of the things that how Adolf Hitler was able to consolidate his power. In those early years, whatever he did, it was successful. He didn't make any mistakes until he invaded Russia in 1942. That was his most catastrophic mistake. Up to that point, he could do no wrong. And the German people, just whatever he wanted to do, they followed him. That's what's happening with individuals, but at a much greater level, because, again, presumably Satan is incarnating him, and this supernatural power he has, this is at a level we've never seen in human history. But to imagine what's going on here I, it shouldn't be that difficult for you to imagine how this is occurring. And with the technology of our age, you can understand how very easy it would be to, to facilitate this. If he controls everything, will he control the media? Well, yes. Could he control the Internet? Well, yes. And so he's facilitating this. All right. Number five. What do you guys think about like the internet and how this kind of interrelates with that? It's just everywhere. That's right. And how some of these guys like, you know, 
Steve Jobs and the other two guys that founded Google, it's just pervasive. I mean, I guess that's kind of what I'm thinking through. Absolutely. How that could be a devil's scheme or somehow tied into it. Sure. Look at the, the, the attack on Christianity in this country. Why would you want to get prayer out of schools? Why would you want to get Christianity out of the public square? Who's left if there's no Christian God? Yeah. Yeah. It's and if he can solve the world's problems, and if he can make this, we haven't talked about this yet in, in detail, but make this pact with Israel and get them to, to sign agreements with their historic enemies and bring seeming peace to the world, good night. Everybody will follow him. He can do no wrong. And ever, throughout all of human history, there have been individuals like that's why John in First John chapter two talks about the spirit of Antichrist is in the world, all pointing to verse eighteen of First John two, the final Antichrist. They're all precursors, illustrative of what he's going to be able to do. Well, you know, when he takes a third of the angels, he has tremendous influence. Exactly. Tremendous power. Mm -hmm. And we're mortals, and he's working on us. That's right. That's right. Number five is in verse verse 15. Now here, this is this is this is fascinating. It's individual, it's a bit problematic. And it was given to him to give breath. Now notice the passive voice. Was given to him to give breath. Who gives him that power? We would conclude Satan. To the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as to do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. All right, it is, it is very difficult to understand what verse 15 is teaching us. This image, which is ordered to be constructed at the end of verse 14, quote, breath is given, end quote, to him. What does that mean? Satan does not have the power to create life. That is clear. He does not have that power. So the assumption is that this is, this is part of the deception. But this ubiquitous nature of the beast is facilitated by this seeming, he seems to be, this beast seems to be alive. Now, Let's 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 think of that just technologically. I don't want to be specific because I don't like to try to make everything that's happening today exactly this is what's being fulfilled in scripture. But certainly technologically. Technologically, I don't have any problem understanding technologically how you could do something like this. And so it's it's trying it's telling us the false prophet is trying to make the beast, the Antichrist, ubiquitous, everywhere present. You cannot escape from him. He is so magnificent, so powerful, so glorious, so deserving of our worship. Wherever you go, wherever you turn, there he is. Now, I don't have any, I don't have difficulty understanding how you could do that technologically. Do you? I mean, even during even during the Roman Empire, they, they had at the heights of the Roman Empire. They they had they used ventriloquism to try to mimic these statues speaking to the people. It, this is your Caesar speaking to you. 
it must have been somewhat effective. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine people being deceived like that, but they were. And, and so in our age with the technology, I can understand how this could occur. And then verse 16 is the sixth. It, it, it follows with the preceding two, four and five, but now we're at the apex. And I want you to notice something. Verse 16, and he causes all. That Greek word is very specific, it's pan, all. And so we don't miss the point, small and great, rich and poor, free men, slaves, to be given a mark on their right head, right hand, or on their forehead. So the sixth thing this false prophet does to facilitate, to support, to enhance this universal power of the beast is everyone gets his mark. Everyone that believes in the beast? Or the beast. Everyone. And if you don't, you can't buy food, you could be killed. We'll read about that coming up later as well. This is mandated. Every human being on earth is supposed to do this. Verse 17, and he provides no one. No one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. I'll get to that in a minute. So how significant is this? If you don't have the mark, you can't buy food. If you can't buy food, you can't live. Now, technologically, is it hard to imagine the level of this kind of control? We're close to that now. We are close to that now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I mean, again, I'm not saying this, what we are seeing today is exact, but I don't have any trouble technologically understanding how you could facilitate something like this. I mean, about four months ago, I got my new credit card, you know, and they you know, reissue the, you know, how it runs out. And this one had the little chip in it, which is, I'm really happy for that because it enhances the security of, of your credit card and so on. And more, not many, but more and more stores, Target and others are using that. Now, that chip is unique. It's unique to me. No one else has that except me, just like yours is unique, to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just think, what if he issues a card or a number that if you don't have that, you can't go to the store and buy things? That's exactly what it's telling us. We're already doing that to our dogs for the last 10 years in the chamber. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, and, and there's talking about doing it for babies, too. Really? Yes, my my son, uh, you know, they live in England, and he was saying that is one of the things that the English government in the national health care is, is beginning to do with children uh, in, in the, the health care system and in the daycare center. Because in England, every child is, is uh, I forget how much it is each year, but each family is appropriate so many dollars for health care, daycare for their kids. And one of the things the government is doing is for these little chips that you put in so that your child will always be protected. You know. So, all I'm saying, and this is one of those, we're in one of those areas where you're going to. Ekman's going home and saying, "This is what the computer." T- I didn't say that. Dave said that. <laughs> all I'm saying is the technology of this makes it easy for us to understand how this could occur. 
And then we read in verse 18, one of the most famous numbers. Everybody knows this number. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. The number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, and I wrote this in the notes, there has been so much speculation as to what this means. I don't know exactly. You know, some say, well, the number of God is perfection, which is seven. And the number of man, which is imperfection, is six. That could be, I just don't know. But all it's telling us is six, six, six is the number that's associated with him. Somehow and in some way, this is an important part of identifying who he is. All right, now. Can I ask a question? Oh, please, absolutely. I know earlier we were talking about some of the elect will be deceived. Could that happen down here too? You know, will they get the mark? Or will the mark, if they get the mark, they can't get the mark. Well, we will read this coming up in the next two chapters. There will be many, many, many who will refuse the mark and will be killed. The text does not tell us some will choose to take the mark. But I, I, Jesus says some will be deceived, so I think it would be reasonable to conclude some of those who put their faith in Christ during the tribulation may take the mark. During the, during the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire turned on the church and many, many, many were martyred, there were some Christians who, who said, I mean, they just lost, you know, lost their courage, and they submitted and worshipped the, the Roman Caesar rather than be executed. But, you know, that wasn't the majority. Most did not. But, you know, I've, I've often, Peggy and I've talked about it, you know, if, if that would happen to us, would we, would we graciously embrace martyrdom? Which is really what we're saying. You graciously embrace it. You trust God. Okay, they're going to kill me if I don't do what they want me to do. And, you know, you, you say, oh, I, I would stand. I would do it. But you kind of imagine if you really, really were at that point. And they stuck a gun to your head or whatever the means might be. Would you still have the courage and faith and trust to stand and accept martyrdom? If you've ever even seen the picture of the 21 Christians who were beheaded on the beach. Oh, yes, yes. I, you know, as a man, I'm going, yes. am I the man that they are? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and my reaction is no. But but it also causes me to think, would you? Mm-hmm. To ask that question, would I have the courage mm-hmm. to stand? Well, I mean, that's, and that's, it's, it's something that you, you want to believe that the courage that you would have is centered in your trust mm-hmm. and dependence on the Lord. And to be absent of the body, to be present with the Lord, and that he will take care, even in martyrdom. And um, But, you know, it's just until you actually would face that, it's you want to believe that you would have the courage. But you know. Andy. Uh, Ken Dick has, has talked about um, having your shoot list ready. Basically, if somebody's holding a gun to your head, what is it that you will really uh, proclaim? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you Try. believe so much in infant baptism that you, the gun yeah. to your head will stand behind that? Or do you believe so much that Jesus is Savior that you'll stand behind that? Yeah. And so just, he was talking about just being ready. Yeah. 
Yeah. That moment might not come, but being ready for it. I used to, uh, used to think that could never, and not martyrdom necessarily, but the real genuine persecution of, of Christians in the United States, that that would never happen. I, I, don't, um, I don't see that being outside the realm of possibility anymore. I see very much that could be. We were talking about that when the kids were all home here for Christmas, that, you know, it's, um, you know, looking at my little grandchild, we were talking about that. What's he going to face? What's the kind of world he's going to be growing up in? You know, it's certainly going to be a lot different than the one I grew up in, and particularly in terms of faith. And uh, you know, We live in difficult, troubling times, but it, the Bible is certainly telling us this. Uh, it's not going to get any better. You know what I mean? It, it's, it, the, the deterioration of things it will continue until you get to this point, whether that's going to be next week or whether it's going to be in 500 years. Only the Lord knows that. And Jim, that <clears throat> isn't going to necessarily be the same today as he... I mean, it says that in the verse, but as far as <coughs> empowering us as Christians yeah. uh, to live for him and times change, it, it seems like God would might provide additional strength during those times. In that oh, absolutely. absolutely. Like he did with the, the Christians during Roman absolutely. times. Mm-hmm. Maybe. You know, or, I mean, at any time in human history, uh, one of my favorite heroes of the 20th century is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. And how he stood in, in for a lot of reasons, just an Eric Metaxas' new biography of him is a great one to read. But how he reached those conclusions uh, that were seminal events in his life, um, and the courage to do that, knowing what it could could result in, and it ultimately resulted in his execution, as you know. God gives the kind of grace that we need in situations like that when we need them. And that's why I think that's how Peggy and I have talked. Our prayer is, God, we're going to depend on you to give us the grace if we ever face something like that. Because right now it's hard to speculate, but that it, God would give us the grace we need in a situation like that. All right, now we are at the end of this little parenthesis, except for, for chapter 14, which is a pretty short chapter. But the importance of, of the first two chapters in this parenthesis, chapter 12 and chapter 13, is we now have the picture of the key players of this seven-year period. Do you have a clear picture of the seven people of this period? You with me? No. <laughs> oh, you're not with me. Okay. <laughs> no, because I've got a quandary. The seven-year period, aren't, aren't they experiencing some of these uh, judgments and destruction uh, at this time? I mean, this is a parenthesis and stuff, but is this all going on, this worship of the beast and everything, while uh, yes. destruction of the yes. world is taking place? Well, I, yeah. You, you know. The answer, the only way to answer that, I think, is yes. There's, the seal judgments occur, and as the trumpet judgments occur, they're occurring that first three-and-a-half period, year period as Antichrist is consolidating his power. The last three-and-a-half years, it's going to really, really get intense and, and worse. So, I mean, that's, it, it's, that's why it's so hard. Um, well, it is. It's, it's so hard to keep the sequence of all this together. How's all this coming together? That's why I like this. The key is this series of judgments. 
And these series of judgments are what God is allowing to occur on planet Earth. And while this is going on, and as in some cases as a result of what is going on, these key people, and what Antichrist and the beast, who is the beast and the false prophet and so on, are doing is helping to bring about some of these catastrophic events. But it all messes together. And it's, it, what's hard for us is to get the narrative. What's the narrative of all this? And that's, uh, you know, that's what I'm trying to do as we, we get into this. All right. Other question oh, is, please. Um, calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. What, what you take that to mean, it is man's number, right? Not that it's important. It, no, it is important because it's in the scriptures. Um, I think... I, th- I think what we are supposed to conclude from this, and this is what I, I don't know if I die for this, but I think what we're to conclude from this is throughout the scriptures, the number seven is associated with God. Um, there are a couple of in- instances in the Old Testament where seven seems to be the number of perfection. I can't explain why, but that seems to be the case with what God has done. And so therefore... Six or six 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 is less than perfection, and that's the number of man. And it seems to be then this one, this antichrist, this beast is the epitome. You know what epitome means? The epitome of the rebellion against God. He is now the chief rebel leading the final rebellion against God as he is empowered by Satan and enhanced in his grab for power by the false prophet. And therefore, therefore, because of that, he is cultivating his worship as God. I want to be worshipped as God. And many, 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 many will fall. And to force that worship is the number. If you don't have it, you can't buy food. And as you'll see in the, in the next two chapters, if you don't have it, you are you could be subject to execution immediately. All right. Chapter 14. We've got a few minutes here. Let's crack into this. This is the beginning of this is just great. And I looked, remember the I is John, the writer of the book. And I looked and behold the Lamb. Your translation should have that capitalized. Who's the lamb? It's the Lord Jesus. Was standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is one of the many, many titles of Jerusalem. So what's happening in verse 1 is like fast forward to the future. And that's the problem because now we're out of chronological sequence. It's a fast forward to the future. But Antichrist, the false prophet, are not going to win. That's the importance of verse 1. Don't think they're going to win. Don't think their deceptive schemes are going to triumph. They won't. Fast forward to the future. And by in the writing of this, in terms of the sequence, you're only months away. But I looked and I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on the forehead. Who are they? Takes you back to chapter 7. 
These are the representatives of Christ during the tribulation period. These are the ones who represent the true message of Jesus, the true living God, not the false. I'm preaching now. I'm settled down. <laughs> Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven. Notice the similes, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpist. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the living creatures and the, the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 purchased from those who had purchased from the earth. Now, at this point, we don't know what this new song is. We'll learn about it coming up. But they're singing this. The 144,000 purchased, redeemed. Verse 4 tells us more about them. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among men as the first fruit to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. All right. Now, what is that doing? It's just reminding us of two things. Number one, in the midst of all this chaos and all this deception and all this false power and false Christ, God still has his witness. God still has those who represent the truth. And it's 144,000. It takes you back to chapter 7. It told us who they are, where they came from, what their mission is. And then what, what it's telling us, secondly, is their character, I mean their character traits, are outstanding. They stand out. They're not idolatrous. They're not immoral. They represent the truth. And they're blameless because they've been purchased. They've been redeemed. They've been bought. So what's he saying? That in the midst of all of this horrific ugliness stands still a testimony for the truth of the gospel. That's 144,000. So is this 144,000 going to come out of like the Jews, right? That's correct. So they're going to, they're going to be there through all this, and then they're going to That's be picked out. They're going to be picked out by him, the Lord. They are, they are chosen. That's right. That's okay. right. That's right. But, you know, they were chosen in, in Revelation 7. They were chosen to be, we assume right. that at the beginning of, of the, the right. tribulation period. And they are being his consistent witnesses. And so the reason I think this is here is so important for us. It's remind, in these five verses, it's reminding us that it, it's going to appear as if Satan has got the triumph. Because he's got almost everybody on earth bowing to, to, his, to his, his false Christ. Verses 1 through 5. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. God still has these 144,000 who represent him and are going to lead multitudes to true faith in Christ. So don't be deceived. I mean, that it's like... Verse 14, excuse me, chapter 14 is a reminder. Don't, don't lose focus here. Satan isn't winning. His deceptive schemes are not going to triumph because God still has his remnant. And that remnant, it just describes their character. I mean, don't, don't stumble over that. It's just defiled, not been defiled with women. Okay, 
apparently taking a vow of celibate. But the importance of that is they're not engaging in the gross immorality of these last days. They're the ones who follow the lamb. They are not following Satan. They're not bowing down to the false beast. They don't take the number. They're following the lamb. So you're saying they could be married, but being married isn't defiling yourself. Is that what you're saying or not? Well, I'm, I'm not. It would seem... It would seem, Fred, that we are to conclude from this part that they have taken a vow of celibacy. Oh, okay. It seems that that is that it seems to be a reasonable conclusion. <clears throat> the other thing is, I guess, is encouraging is that it is possible, at least for those hundred forty-four thousand that are very outstandingly unique. Well, unique, they're outstanding. Yes. To survive, not taking the money. Yes, and it. And it, they're they're being protected too by God. God's protecting, but that yes, I mean they the the language of verse four and five is they stand out. You know, there, no lie is found in their mouth. Verse five, they're blameless. They stand out. Listen, one of the one of the key principles of God's word is no matter how bad things get, God still has a remnant. No matter how bad things seem to be, God still has a remnant. They're still faithful people to him. When it looks like, quote, everybody, close quote, is following this fault. No, no. God has still has a remnant. And in any point in human history, God always has a remnant of believers. There are always people who are faithful to him. It's, it's not relative to this, but it just popped into my mind about <clears throat> Daniel and Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. Well, it's a good analogy. I mean, it, it really is. And it, it, in, a, in a way, it, it gets to that main point that I just made, too, that whenever, whenever is happening, God always has faithful people who remain loyal to him, even at the point of martyrdom, if need be. So it's such a significant reminder that, and that's why I think those verses are here. It's a reminder, no matter how bad it seems to be getting, God still has faithful people, and he's going to triumph. And you have this vision of the Lamb in Jerusalem, standing with 144,000. That's kind of a picture of what is about to happen. And let me tell you, I, I think I'm going to stop. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to stop. What, what I, want to, I want to set you up for the rest of the, the section because it's going to, we're going to kind of go to a fast pace again. But you, you're being introduced to the key players of this block of time. Now the focus is going to go back to the bold judgments, the final judgments of God. And that's what, uh, that's what the Lebanon 14 and 15 is a very short chapter. It's only a couple of verses. And then chapter 16 are these bold judgments. And then 17 and 18, we're introduced to this mysterious, quote, Babylon. And we've got to talk about that. But that's, the, as you will see, that, that is a very important metaphor for everything that Antichrist is constructed. And in the last three and a half years, it starts to fall apart. So tomorrow what I want to do is I want to fo- – I don't mean tomorrow. I mean um, next Wednesday. I want to – um, anyway. But there, there are a series of angels introduced. There's a block of three angels in verses 6 through 9. 
And there's a block of another angels in verses 14 through 20. That's very important to organize this material in that way. So that's what we'll do. Are you with me? I'm doing the best I can to keep the chronology and keep our focus on these key players. Now it's going to go fast. I'm sorry? Chapter 14 then? Yeah, yeah. If you want to read that, would be great. Rob? Are the seven key players listed in the notes here? Yeah, yeah. That's a way I've organized that. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. <coughs> to be it's, honest, I was sitting here trying to name them, in my, and I can't do it. I think I can do it, but I'm just, I'm not... <laughs> I'll give you a quiz next week to see if you <laughs> Let me pray here. Lord, we're thankful for uh, the study, and I am grateful for these men that are willing to study a difficult book like this. But we are reminded that um, even in the midst of what seems to be horrible chaos and destruction and uh, the enhancement and empowerment of this, this master deceiver, the Antichrist, you still have a remnant that is loyal to you and is is obedient to you, and that certainly was true uh, in our era. It's true in every phase of human history, and it's true here at the end, right before the Lord Jesus comes back. Lord, each one of us is called upon to be faithful to you, to represent you well, to be loyal to you, to be devoted to you, to have the courage to stand for you, regardless of, of, of the circumstances. Lord, we ask you to give us the grace, because that we can say it, but we need the grace to, to live it. We want to represent you well. We're not in a country where we're being persecuted, thrown in jail, or executed, but we are increasingly finding ourselves more and more in a minority in terms of the values and morals and ethical standards that are dear to you. We also are finding ourselves more and more marginalized in terms of really having major impact and influence on public policy. So we see these things being done, laws being passed that are very discouraging. But Lord, our focus needs to be on you because as society and culture get farther and farther away from your truth, we should not be surprised by a growing embrace of evil. But we do not represent that. We represent righteousness, we represent truth, and we represent you. Help us to have the courage to do that with grace to be merciful and compassionate, but nonetheless to stand for truth and to represent you well. So give us the courage to do that. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.